Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you that we worship an awesome Savior. To God be the glory, great things he has done. And we worship you and we thank you for all that you've done for creation, for the love that you expressed in sending Jesus. Thank you, that, Lord Jesus, that you died for us and made a way back to God for us. And we worship you and we thank you for that. Thank you that one day we'll see you, Lord Jesus, once again. And our worship will be amazing on that day as we have brought face to face with the Lord Jesus. We worship you this morning. We give you thanks. We pray now that you would speak to us and meet with us as we read your word together, as we study it together. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have uh, two older brothers, Neil and Colin. Uh, Neil was born in 1964 and Colin was born in 1966. And Neil and Colin uh, and my parents had a nice little life together uh, everything was good, everything was, was nice, they were all comfortable and had a great life together. H- here's some pictures of my two brothers, there's uh, sibling Bliss, it's my older brother Neil, and then Colin is the younger one who looks rather like Daniel, who's gone out, and, and there they are again, just enjoying how great life is together as two brothers, and uh, one with, uh, on, a, on a customs launch with my dad, with my brother wearing his dad's hat, and uh, here's another one, digging on the beach up in the north of Scotland. Uh, and ready for church on a Sunday in the, in the, that wasn't my dad's car, and in the stocks, I don't know where that was, but in the stocks rating together, and then again up in the north of Scotland, and then um, all was well, that's the last one, isn't it, Mark, of us together, yeah, all was well, all was comfortable, all was going nicely together, until suddenly in 1972, when Neil was not nine, and I was seven, and they thought life was just good, suddenly something happened that ruined everything. Two became three, and suddenly they had a little brother. What a, what a specimen. Doesn't he look so <laughs> phenomenal? That really was me. I wasn't me on steroids or a bee sting. That really, I really was that fat. Fantastic. Their lives were ruined. Suddenly their nice kind of two-bed house suddenly wasn't big enough, and I just ruined everything, and they've never let me forget it, really. And you can see on these two pictures, Neil, I think, is sort of lining that ice cream up to, just to ram that in my face. And then uh, you can see this one, I think, I think they're both toying, you know, how can we ditch him over, that's Grasmere in the Lake District, how can we throw him overboard and get rid of him, he's ruined our lives. And, and ever since then, the accusation of my brothers has always been against me that um, I spoiled everything, uh, and that I was spoiled, and I got away with murder because I was the youngest. And maybe if you're the youngest, or if you're the oldest looking at the youngest, maybe that's how you feel about some of your, your siblings. Family dynamics can be really challenging, can't they? Family dynamics sometimes between siblings can be really challenging. Um, and, and, and today we're going to look at a situation in the Bible where there was great sibling rivalry, where you've got a whole group of brothers and a sister who really didn't get on so well, and there was some real rivalry. We're going to recommence looking at the book of Genesis together today, the first book in the Bible. And we've been going through this over these last few years, and we're picking up the story again in Genesis 37. And we're looking at the, we're kind of breaking into the story of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Jacob is, is interchangeably called Jacob and Israel from now on in the Bible. And we're looking at Jacob and his family. Jacob actually had 12 sons and at least one daughter, but it was the 11th son, Joseph, that caused all the problems. And he unleashed, or, or, or his arrival unleashed intense rivalry and envy between the other brothers. So we're going to read Genesis 37. But before we look at Genesis 37, 
just look, and all the verses today are on your outline. There's an outline in your seat on the other side of the bulletin. Uh, all the verses are there, but it'll be also up on the, on the screen for you. Just look at Genesis 30, 23 to 24. This is some 17 years before the, the, the chapter we're looking at today. And it says this, She, that's Rachel, became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. And she had another son called Benjamin, um, who we'll find uh, in the coming weeks in the story as we look together. Because of all sorts of scheming and deception and dysfunctionality in Jacob's family, Jacob ended up with two wives, Rachel and then Leah, who were actually sisters. And then Jacob also took two further wives, Bilhah and and Zilpah. And between them, they had 12 sons in total with Jacob. And it was all a bit of a mess. And the fact that these 12 sons had different mothers added to the whole dysfunctionality and the rivalry and the envy uh, in this family, all sorts of tension and rivalry between them. And so if we fast forward 17 years from these verses in Genesis 30, we come to Genesis 37. This is around about 1880 BC, 1886, something like that, BC, 1,800 years before Jesus came into the world. And we get to Genesis 37. So let's read the whole of Genesis 37. I'm going to read it to you. If you've got a Bible, you can uh, follow it along if you want to, or you can just listen, whatever's easiest for you. So Genesis 37. Jacob, or Israel, lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? They hated him all the more because of his dream and what he'd said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me? where they are grazing their flocks. They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams." When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. 
But the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Genesis 37 starts with these words. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Joseph, aged 17, had been sent by his father Jacob to work with four of his 11 brothers, Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. But when he came back, he brought his father a bad report about them. They were obviously up to no good in some way or other. And whatever Joseph's motives were in bringing this bad report to Jacob, we know that the situation wasn't helped by the way that Jacob treated him. Verse 3 says, Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and had made an ornate robe for him. He was the favorite son of Jacob's favorite wife. That was the wife he always wanted. He got tricked into others. But he was Jacob's favorite son of Jacob's favorite wife. And that favoritism spilled over into Jacob making this ornate robe, or what traditionally has been known as a coat of many colors. Whatever the robe was, whatever, however it was ornate, it set him apart as the favorite. As you looked at Joseph, you'd have seen him wearing this robe. He instantly stood out as being different from his brothers, as being favored over his brothers by his dad. Every time his brothers would have seen him, it would have rankled with them. They would have been reminded of the favoritism toward their youngest brother or younger brother. And anyone who has children knows how difficult it is trying to ensure that you treat your children in the same way to try and treat them equally and, and make sure that they all grow up with a sense of equality in the family. And all of us are children of somebody, so we can all probably think of different ways in which our own parents seem to favor our brothers or our sisters. Anybody identify with that? You know, they always got more. They could go to bed later. They got a bigger this. They got more of that. Does that kind of connect with anybody? Maybe, yeah. I think most of us can think, yeah. My, old, my, my middle brother was the favorite. My middle brother would think I was the favorite. I would probably say he was the favorite, as my older brother would have said as well. And it doesn't really matter what you do as parents. No matter how hard you try, you always end up with one or two of the children who seem to think that one of the other children are the favorite, even when that probably isn't the case at all. I don't think most parents set out to favor one child over another. Sometimes that happens without them realizing it. But verse 4 tells us that Jacob did, and it tells us what the consequences were. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. 
and couldn't speak a kind word to him. And the consequences at a human and a family level were, were, were tragic and devastating for this family. These older brothers decided to murder their younger brother. I don't actually think my older brothers ever really considered murdering me. probably a a pain at times to them, but I don't think that that ever really came into their minds. But here we have a situation where these brothers really, really hate, really hate Joseph, and they decide they're going to murder him. Two of them, Reuben and Judah, tried to prevent that, but even Judah was happy ultimately to sell him for money, to sell him as a slave. And, And Jacob, the doting father, was left distraught thinking that his son was dead. Joseph, at the age of 17, was sold into slavery And then he would go on to face false accusations and he would spend time in prison for a crime he didn't commit. But God was really at work in this situation. All the way through the situation, God is at work and turning the envy and the jealousy and the evil of these brothers into good. Stephen, 1,800 years after this event, as he addressed the Jewish ruling council in uh, it's recorded in Acts 7, as he, as, he, as he defends the Christian faith to the ruling Jews, he says these words, because the patriarchs, that, that's how they referred to these 12 sons of Jacob, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. And we're going to see in the next few weeks how God turned evil into good. In fact, there's a key verse in this whole passage, which perhaps lots of you are familiar with, where uh, Joseph finally confronts his brothers many years later, and he says, you intended this for bad, for evil, but God intended this for good. And so God is at work right the way throughout this narrative, turning what is the evil of others into good for the ultimate glory of God and for God's plans. Joseph knew that God had set him apart for a massively important task. He went from being a slave to being the second most powerful man on the planet. He was the equivalent of the Secretary of State. You know, in America, you've got the president. He's the most powerful man on the planet. The second most powerful man is, or woman is, the Secretary of State in in America. That was the kind of position that Joseph had. Egypt was the superpower of the day. And Joseph went from being a slave to being the second most powerful man on the planet. And when he was finally reunited with his brothers and they faced him in Egypt, he says these words to them, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Joseph knew that his life was in God's hands and that despite the terrible situations that he experienced, God was at work. God had been at work, and it was God who was preparing him, would go with him, and had taken him to Egypt ultimately, not his brothers. It looked, it seemed, his brothers probably thought, that's it, we've got rid of him. To Joseph, in the, in the instant, it probably felt like his brothers were in charge, were in control, but Joseph here says, no, it was God who sent me to Egypt. And we'll look more into that whole concept in the coming weeks, God turning evil into good and God being at work in and through our struggles and the need that we have to trust God even when life just seems to be falling apart. For Joseph, it must have seemed as he was in that pit and then as he was being taken, probably handcuffed or chained up as a slave and then sold in the slave market and then cast into prison for a crime he didn't commit. For Joseph, life must have just kind of fallen apart. I can't imagine handling or dealing with those kind of situations. And we'll look at what that looks like for us to trust God, even when life seems to have fallen apart. But as I was praying this week, and as I was studying this passage, and trying to see what I felt God 
wanted me to bring from this passage this morning. I, I was struck by this, but by three different types of people, three different groups of people, people if you like, in this passage. I was struck by the different ways in which they behaved and what we can learn from how they behaved and interacted together. So let's look firstly at Joseph. He, here was a, a young man of 17 with a much younger brother, Benjamin. And then he's got these 10 older brothers, these 10 older brothers who hate him, who despise him, even to the point of having him killed or, or wanting to have him killed. It's not clear how much Joseph understood about the details of God's plan for his life, but he certainly knew that God had marked him out for something special. Joseph knew what the dreams meant. The brothers knew what the dreams meant. He only had to tell them, and instantly they were outraged by what he was saying to them. Are, you gonna, are we going to bow down to you? Joseph knew what those dreams meant. Joseph knew that God was marking him out for something really quite special, really quite significant. He was definitely aware of God's hand upon his life and God's calling. He had these two dreams which he unwisely or, or perhaps didn't share them in the, in, in the wisest way with his brothers. I don't think if I'd gone to my brothers and, and said, you know what, guys, you're going to be you know, doing whatever I tell you. Uh, th- there's better ways of doing that, perhaps. And, and Joseph perhaps rather unwisely uh, shares what happens. Firstly, he has this dream that they would gather these sheaves of corn before the days of bales and combines. And his sheaf was stood up. And all the other, the sheaves the brothers had gathered were bowing down. And his brothers knew exactly what that dream meant. One day, they were all going to bow down to him. They knew that. Joseph didn't need to interpret it. And they were absolutely steaming mad. They were outraged by this. And then he has this second dream where the sun and the moon and the 11 stars are bowing down to him. And, and everybody, including Jacob, knew what this meant. The sun and moon represented his father and his mother, or probably actually his stepmother. His mother was actually dead by this point. And, and the 11 stars were his 11 brothers. And even his father, who spoiled him rotten throughout his life, was a little bit irritated with this dream. And his brothers were jealous of him, verse 11 says. See, Joseph knew that he had been chosen by God to do something special. Joseph, I don't think at this stage, knew exactly what that would mean, but he knew that it would mean him being elevated above his brothers and probably elevated above many others too. The dreams that God had given him told him that, and the coat from his father added to that sense of importance that Joseph had. But he didn't handle that knowledge too well, did he? He didn't perhaps carry that information and that that sense of calling and that sense of God's touch on his life. He didn't perhaps handle that brilliantly. Telling his brothers and his parents that he was going to rule over them in the way that he did, maybe just wasn't maybe the wisest way to, to have done that. But he knew that God had chosen him to do something special, and he was burdened with that knowledge. When you know that, or when you sense God is calling you to do something, sometimes the burden of that knowledge is difficult to carry. And I want to speak firstly to, to those of you here who, like Joseph, were 17, or maybe you're 15 or 16, you're, you're near Joseph's age. Those of you who are at school or at college or in your first few years at work, maybe. Joseph was called to do something really special. He was going to be the second most powerful man on the planet at that point in history. And God was going to use him to preserve his people. And it may be this morning that God is calling you to do something special for him. You may only be 15 or 16 or 17. And yet God has already been speaking to you and is calling you and is putting on your heart to do something really significant for him. Maybe to plant a church. Maybe to be a missionary or be a full-time evangelist or a church elder or lead some kind of organization or start an organization that will truly bring societal change and transformation. 
Over the summer, I've been reading the, the life story of William Wilberforce, a man who God raised up, who totally transformed the world. He brought the end to slavery. And it may be that God is calling you to do something equally transforming to our world and society. Bringing God's kingdom and his standards into a messed up, screwed up world. And I began to sense that God was calling me to do the kind of thing that I'm doing now when I was 16, but it was 26 before God enabled me to really fulfill that calling and work full time for God. But if you are 11 this morning, or maybe you're 16, 17 like Joseph, or maybe you're 27, and you sense that God is calling you to do something special, something unique for him, then go for it. Embrace that dream and, and, and dream that dream. And go for it and live out the calling that God is putting on your heart. If God is calling you to do something special for him, then go for it. Do what he's telling you to do. And don't be put off by your age. Don't be put off by your current circumstances. You might think, yeah, well, I'm at school right now. That's true. And Joseph was in the equivalent of school at some point in his life. And yet he went on to do great things for God. Don't be put off by your current abilities. God can do way more than you can begin to think or imagine through you if you will surrender your life to him. If you believe that God is saying to you that you should do something specific for him, then keep praying about it. I went to see a, uh, an, an older friend of, of mine many years ago after a church meeting uh, up, up here in the northeast, really burdened that God was calling me to Christian work. And I went to see him and he says, you just go back and get stuck into your church. Pray about this, keep praying about it. Go to the prayer meeting, get stuck in at church, keep sharing the gospel. And wait on God. And that was good advice. I was probably 18 or 19 at the time. But keep praying about it. Keep asking God. If, if, if it's not from you, Lord, if I'm imagining this, take it away. If this is you speaking to me, if, if you're putting this on my heart, God, make this bigger. Make this more noticeable in my life. And, and if that's you, then come and talk to Keith or Paul or myself as elders. We would love to pray with you. And we would love to pray for you and to help you fulfill God's plan for your life. I thank God for a for two or three older people when I was at that age, exploring whether, I, whether God was calling me into Christian work, who were able to give me good, godly wisdom, which was a real blessing and a help. But be careful how you manage that calling. Be careful how you manage it. Because if you're 16 or 17 or, or 11 or 12 or, or whatever age it might be, and you really sense God is calling me to do something significant and special, then that can be, uh, it can spill over quickly into arrogance when we know that God has put a put his hand upon us for something unique. So we need to be really careful and, and, and not annoy those around us with that calling. Don't be, well, be humble despite your calling. Don't be like this guy that we're going to watch from The Apprentice. So don't be like that guy. Don't be like that. that that's not a great example of humility. Be humble despite what God might be saying to you and, and despite the importance of the role that God might have for you. Philippians 2, 3 to 4, that we had it read in worship earlier for us. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. But equally, don't let people write you off because you're young. Don't let someone write you off because you're only 15 or 16. 
Paul said these words to Timothy, who was a young church leader in the New Testament. He said this, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And youthfulness can also apply to being young in the faith. You might be older, but still young in the faith. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, Paul says. Whether you're 11, 17, 27, or whatever age you are, don't let, God, don't let people look down upon you because of your youth. And don't think that you're unimportant to God. God has plans for your life, and he wants to do great things through you, whoever you are today. And if you sense that God has been calling you to serve him in some way, big or small, then go for it. And stay focused on that calling. That There's so many uh, distractions in life that will pull us away from that calling. Stay focused on that calling, even when those around you don't encourage you. You may be the only person who really has that sense in your heart, and others may not be encouraging to you. Stay focused. It may be that you'll face all sorts of obstacles on the way. Joseph certainly did. He was 17 when he had these dreams, but it was many years later and after being a slave and then in prison for a crime he didn't commit before he finally fulfilled the plans God had for his life. It may be that although you're young, you haven't sensed that God has been speaking to you yet and hasn't been calling you to do something spectacular. You know, the likelihood is that most of us won't be missionaries. Most of us won't be evangelists or elders or start organizations that change the world. But God still has great plans for you. As, a, as young people, God still has great plans for you. And he still wants you to do great things for him. Jesus said that, you will, that those that follow him will do even greater things than he did. And I don't think that means miracles and so on. It means leading people to Christ, telling them about the gospel, preaching the gospel around the world. And we can all do that wherever we are. Because whether you end up as a teacher or a civil servant or a plumber or an electrician or a cleaner, you can still do those things for Jesus. And you can still bring God's kingdom into the place where God has put you. You can still make a difference in the world around you and in the lives of those around you. The greatest difference you could make in anybody's life is by telling them about Jesus. And you don't have to be a missionary, you don't have to be a church elder, you don't have to uh, be an evangelist to tell someone about Jesus. You can do that whilst you clean people's houses. You can do that whilst you teach children or while you, whilst you wire someone's home up. Whether you're 11, whether you're 17, whether you're 27, each one of you here has great potential, phenomenal potential to do amazing things for Jesus. So trust him, listen to him, listen for his voice. What is he saying to you? And commit yourself to follow him today. The second group of people I want us to think about is what I've called the peer group. Joseph's peer group were his brothers and they didn't do a great job. They weren't a helpful peer group to, Jacob, uh, to Joseph. They were envious they were jealous, and they hated Joseph. And, and yes, Joseph maybe wasn't exactly the, 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 the wisest guy and, in, and the most humble person in the world. And, and Jacob made matters worse by spoiling him and, and marking out the fact that he was different with this ornamental robe. And it can be difficult, can't it, sometimes when somebody in our peer group gets all the attention. Everybody thinks about them, or, or they're the one that everybody goes to first. And it seems that nobody's interested in us because we're a bit quieter or maybe not as gifted as that person or whatever. And it can be difficult and sometimes that can provoke envy and jealousy amongst us. When my friend here gets all the attention or, my or, or this family here that, that we're friends with, they, they seem to have more than we do or whatever it might be. But Joseph's brothers took their envy and their jealousy to a whole other level. They were consumed with hatred 
and they tried to kill him. And we need to be really careful that we don't allow the success of others to create envy and jealousy in our hearts. In fact, Paul lists envy alongside sexual immorality, witchcraft, and idolatry in his description of a sinful life, what he calls the act of the flesh in Galatians 5. And envy and jealousy are things that we often kind of you know, write off as not being such a big deal. But, but Paul lists them right there amongst sexual immorality and witchcraft and idolatry. And that's why Peter says this in the New Testament. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Envy and, and jealousy should play no part in a Christian community. Those of you who, who are in space, those of you who are in our church youth group, you're 11 to 17, 18, that's you. Don't allow yourselves to be envious and jealous of each other. Because all it will do is destroy your relationships and destroy your youth group. And it can be hard when somebody else in our peer group gets all the attention or, or stands out more. But please do all you can to get rid of jealousy and envy and hatred amongst each other. Because jealousy and envy will lead to hatred. And hatred will destroy your relationships with each other. And, and what should be a, a group of people who are a help and an encouragement to one another can so easily be something that's destructive and damaging. And Satan loves it when we fall out with each other. Satan loves it when two young people are, are falling out with each other in the church youth group or when two older people are falling out with each other in church. Satan loves that because he loves to bring division. He's the great thief that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And he loves it when two Christians aren't talking to each other or don't like each other or falling out with each other. He loves that. And the only person that wins when that happens is Satan. And we're competing with each other and we're fighting with each other instead of focusing on what's important, which is God's glory and lost people out there. And the same applies to every age group in the church, whether whoever your peers are, Get rid of all envy, the Bible tells us, and, and jealousy towards them. Instead, we're called to be encouraging to one another and help each other. The writer to the Hebrews says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And as young people, some of you may go on and plant churches or be missionaries. Others of you will stay at home and get married and have kids. Others of you will be cleaners and teachers and nurses and plumbers and civil servants and all kinds of jobs and roles. Regardless of the path that God has for you, whatever that plan is for your life that God has for you, you can all encourage and support one another in your various paths and careers. Some of them are going to stand out. Some of them won't stand out. Some of them will be more kind of private roles. Some of them will be more public roles. Regardless, rather than envying each other, we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds, encouraging one another. Reuben isn't famous like Joseph. Joseph stands out. Reuben isn't so famous, not so well known. And yet it was because Reuben stopped his brothers killing Joseph that Joseph lived and went on to become this, this great man. Reuben isn't the one who's famous in this part of the Bible. But what he did mattered hugely and it impacted the whole course of history. So whether you're a Joseph or whether you're a Reuben, the, the guy in the background, whether you stand out like Joseph, whether you're in the background like Reuben, work together and serve God together. And you know, those of us who are older are not immune from jealousy and envy either. Whether it's over the careers our peers have, their careers seem to have gone on and, and, and mine didn't, and he's earning a lot more than I am. Or perhaps the success of our peers' kids, or oh, they've all gone off to university, they're doing so well, they're all going on with Jesus and mine aren't. Or whether it's the size of our peers' homes, 
or the role our peers play in church life. Let's be done with envy and jealousy and instead support and encourage one another as we seek to live and work for Jesus together. The last group I want to think about briefly is what I've called older people. Now, I've not said old people, older people. And I'm older, okay? If you want to define young people as those perhaps between 11 and in their late 20s, then when I say older people, I mean everybody over their late 20s. So if you are 30 or over, you are these older people I'm talking to this morning. You're no longer young. I hate to tell you that. If you're over 30, you're not young. You are older. Okay, at 30, I had two kids. We were working full-time. With, you know, at 30, you're no longer old. You're no longer young, you're old. I hate to tell you that. So whether you're in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, or even in your 90s, that is you. If you're over 30, you're not young. How do we then, as that group of people, older people, not old, but older, relate to those who are young, to those who are 11 or 17 or 27? And these age groups are arbitrary, I know, but, but you get the point. Those of us who are young, or, or, or those amongst us who are young, are we a help and an encouragement to them? Or, are, or do we discourage them? Are we a, those of us who are older, that's over 30, are we a help to those who are under 30? Or are we a discouragement to them? Paul writes these words to Titus. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance. That's you over 30 men. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Those of us who are older have a massive role to play in the life of a local church, a local church family like this. For those of us who are men, are we living lives that are worthy of respect? Do men younger than us, do, do you think they'll look up to us and say, yeah, that... That guy somebody I respect. Those of us, or those of you who are ladies, are you reverent in the way you live? It's the word that Paul uses. Do you live a life that's an example of reverence and godly living to those who are younger than you? The younger women in the church, do they look up to the older ladies? Not the elderly ladies, but those who are older than them. And that can be 25 if there's a 20-year-old or, or, or whatever age group. Just anybody who's older than you or, or, or younger? Are we a blessing to those who are younger than us? Are we encouraging them when they step out and serve God? Do we say thank you to our young people when they do the computer? Now, there's nobody young over there today. Definitely not. I hate to tell you that. But, but, but often it's, it's, Ma it's Matthew and, and Alistair who are over there. When they do the sound and, and, and the, the screen, do we say thank you to them afterwards? When some of our young people are in the band helping us in worship, do we say thank you to them and thank them for the part they've played? For those who are out the back in creche or in Sunday school, this morning Daniel's in creche and Naomi's in Sunday school and I think also Emma is helping in Sunday school. That'd be really good this morning if you went up and said, Emma, thank you for helping Claire in Sunday school this morning. Daniel, thank you for helping in creche. And, and Matthew and Alistair, thank you for last week. You don't need to thank these guys, these are old. But thank you to these young people for helping and serving. Are we seeking to teach those younger than us, as Paul says, what is good? You know, if we're in our 30s, 
Yes, we should be looking to men who are older than us, but we should all be actively discipling men who are younger than us. We're not young men anymore. We're old men. I hate to tell you that. And if you're over 30 as a lady, you are older. <laughs> I hate to tell you that. I'm going to leave that one there. Whatever age we are, whether that's 17, 37, 57, 77, there are always people younger than us, people who are looking to us, people who are not yet at that stage in life and are looking for an example of how to do that stage in life. So let's make sure that we're an example. Jacob didn't do a great job, did he, as a, as a husband or as a father, and his family was pretty dysfunctional. And favoring Joseph caused massive resentment in his family. It caused meltdown. It caused attempted murder. And Jacob, uh, uh, Jacob spent many years presuming that his son was dead. And those of us who are older and those who, of us who work with the young people too, we need, to try to hide, we need to try hard to avoid any favoritism so that we don't include some and exclude others. We don't just talk to this young person and, and we, we work hard to include all of them so that we don't create favoritism even if by accident. So let's make sure that we do all we can to help and encourage those of us who are younger. Joseph changed the world. He became the second most powerful man in the world. And we're going to see that in coming weeks. And he played a key role in the history of God's people. So regardless of whether you are 11 or 17 like Joseph or 27, God wants to do great things in you and through you in this world. Jesus turned the world upside down with just 12 men, 12 men who were committed men. With the exception of one, they all went to their deaths for Jesus, as far as we know. But just think of what Jesus could do through the young people and the children who we haven't even talked about, the, the primary school age kids who were through there and the creche age kids. Just think what Jesus could do through these young people, through these children in the years ahead. Just imagine what Jesus could do in this world. And if we work together and not against each other, and if we encourage one another and spur on those who are younger than us, just think what we could achieve for the glory of Jesus in this world. We're going to watch and listen to a song called Start a Fire in Me. I've played this before, but it's a great song. And as we watch and listen to this, this is the end of the service. I'm not going to pray, but you can just pray in your own heart to God. And you can, there's an opportunity for us just to connect with God this morning. If, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, if he's calling you to step out in faith and begin to dream that dream about serving him in some particular way, fan that fire. Fan those flames. Come and talk to me or Keith or Paul. We'd love to pray with you and help you in that. If God is speaking to you in another way about it, how we can get alongside one another and encourage one another, do that today. And it doesn't matter whether we're 17 or 77, we can all serve God. And we can all work together for the glory of Jesus. So let's watch this, and as we watch this, the service will be over, but do come and chat with me afterwards if you want to at the end. Thanks, Mark.